Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Peggy Taylor-Reed is a photographer using both a traditional and an alternative lens. Her work encompasses constructed photographs, concepts, and the natural world. She holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the University of Ottawa and a Bachelor of Education from the University of Toronto. She is an educator and a longtime member of Gallery 44 Centre for Contemporary Photography and presently is a member and past co-chair of the Redhead Gallery Collective. Peggy's work can be found in both private and public collections, most notably the Art Gallery of Peel. She received the NY Photo Curator Award for her series Repair, the Director's Award for the work Strength from the A. Smith Gallery in Texas, and two honorable mentions for the 12th Julia Cameron Awards in Self-Portrait and Digital Manipulation and Collage. Her work has been published in The Hand Magazine, Prefects Photo, and she was a featured photographer in Light Journal 05. Recent exhibitions include Resounding Within the Echoes, a group show of gallery artists at Lonsdale Gallery, and online shows The Portrait Tussle Projects, curated by Laura Horn, and Collage, curated by Claire Christie for the B. Aired Gallery in Toronto. Peggy Taylor-Reed currently lives and works in Caledon, Ontario, and is represented by the Lonsdale Gallery in Toronto. Please help me welcome Peggy Taylor-Reed to the podcast. Good afternoon, or good evening, I should say. Peggy, how are you? Very well, thank you very much. I'm so glad you're here, and I am looking forward to talking to you about your photographs and the creations that you've created and some of the great shows that you have coming up right now. Yes, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. I thought we would start with, I'm really interested in, you do these constructed photographs, and for anybody that hasn't seen your work, can you describe some of them and tell us what that process is and what a constructed photo is? For me, a constructed photograph is a layered photograph. There's two ways I work with the photograph. One is digitally in the computer with montage and compilation. And then the other way is with collage, if I'm working with the figure. Because I work digitally, my photographs are always manipulated in some form through the computer and the media. Have you always worked in the photographic medium? Have you always been a photographer or have you worked with other materials? Well, I think I was more of a printmaker in my brain when I came to photography. So I entered photography through that sort of thinking process. But in university, which is so long ago, I hope I can remember, I did a lot of photography and photography was always my minor kind of working alongside visual arts. So printmaking, painting, installation, sculpture. So it was pretty much the traditional visual arts course. So I think I came to photography in that mindset, not through the photographic mindset. 
And then you eventually got into the digital world. So how did that transition come about? Oh, that was huge because at that point in the darkroom, I was doing a lot of multi-negative printing. So in that way, Jerry Yulesman, his magic realism, surrealism was inspiring me as well as collage artists and photo montage artists during the war, John Hartfield, Hannah Hawk sort of thing. So, but I was doing that in the dark room and it was very time consuming and a lot of trial and error and many mistakes. So it became costly. And then in 85, I had a wonderful opportunity to take an international computer graphics course at Sheridan. So I jumped at it and I thought, oh, let's see what's going on here. And I had no idea that there were machines <laughs> that you could bring images in and you could manipulate them, you could layer them, you could do so many things with them, similarly to what you were doing in the dark room, and even more. It opened so many doors, I never looked back. Mm-hmm. And what kind of images were you working with at that point? At that time, I was working a lot with natural materials, like things from the garden. And I was also working with my children. It's hard to say because that was 1985. It was before I had my children. So in those days, I was working with the figure. I was working with environments where I could place the figure in. I was also working with seed pods and bulbs, and I was looking at things below the surface and above the surface of the ground. And I was sort of weaving them together. So yeah, it's hard. It it was so long ago. More recently, you have a piece or a show called Consumed. Can you talk about that? I'm really fascinated. I've looked at one of your pieces from that repeatedly. Maybe you could explain to people what it's about and where that idea came from. It was actually came through the director at the gallery. She wanted to put together a piece dealing with the boxes, which were post-consumer waste that I worked with, Form Follows Dysfunction. So the boxes were part of the beginning of it. And then we went back and looked at other series that I'd worked on in my conceptual area. And there were discarded rituals. And also it was Crash and Burn, which was dealing with mason jars and food security. Mm-hmm. And so we pulled these together into the whole notion of consumed because all of the work was about post-consumer waste and food security. So it was all about the consumerism and the consumed being consumed actually is mm-hmm. how I conceived it in my head. So being consumed and then working with the dry ice is being consumed into the jar and also talks about how we preserve food and lost our, we've lost our ability to be able to preserve food and the way we always used to. So we knew what we were eating. We knew what we were bringing into our bodies. Now we give it to someone else to do for us and we lose a bit of control over what is going into that. I mean, I'm two sides to me because I have a family member who has worked for many years in food, creating recipes for mass production. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the labeling are just large names for very normal things. So sometimes it's just also a communication thing between reading the label and understanding it. I love how you said that it's being consumed because 
you have a video posted on your Instagram and I'll make sure I link everybody to it with the dry ice consuming the mason jar. And, and that was the perfect world. Like it wasn't happening inside. It was on the outside taking it over. So I think that's a beautiful description that you had for that. This show is on until May 12th, I believe. Is that May 14th? May 14th. So if anybody gets a quick chance by the time the podcast comes out, they should go check it out for sure. You are working on towards another show right now. Can we give us a little hint as to what's going on? Because the opening will be very close to this podcast. Yes, I was approached by Fausta Falcaponte to be included in a wonderful group show called View Find Her around women photographers and those that live in the Mississauga area and are connected to Mississauga in some way. I've lived out in Peel region for over 40 years. So yeah, I've seen a lot of growth in the art community. So I was very honored to be included in that show. And the work that I have presenting in that show is called Form Follows Dysfunction. And those are the boxes that are also at the Lonsdale show. Mm -hmm. And they're the larger pieces, the 30 by 30 inch works. And they're really kind of fun. They're actually humorous when you look at them because they're about deconstruction and deconstructing the boxes. But when you start to look at them, they have all sorts of connections to other things. Like there's one box that reminds me of South Park characters. Mm -hmm. Others, they just start to laugh and you start to make associations with them. So that's the work that's at that show. And is there relevance to the colors of the boxes or is it just based on the boxes that you... Based on the box. Yeah, it's interesting how sometimes the outside doesn't always reflect the inside. The inside really reveals a lot more about, well, it's construction, but just about the surfaces. Yeah, the shapes are really interesting. Like I can see what you mean by looking at them as characters. I imagine if you brought a group of small children and they would see all sorts of magical things in those. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I still have a whole slew of them. I'm going to probably shoot a few more just to continue it as I always do. But one came into my studio this morning, actually, from my partner, and it looks like a horse. It looks like an animal. So that's interesting. So you just gather them from anywhere then? I collect them for years. And then all of a sudden I think, okay, I've got to get them out of my studio. So I better take photographs of them. Oh, that's I have like a stack of them right now. And they're getting to the point where, yeah, I've got to. I got to shoot some time to get back to that. (laughs) I get tired working with just the object sometimes. Like it's very, I don't know, I find it confining. And maybe that goes back to being a visual artist before I came into photography. Mm -hmm. And I go back and forth between the conceptual side of my practice to my sort of figurative side, which is more my painterly side. So when I get too consumed with one area, I will maybe hop to the next area or back to the other area just to give myself a break and allow myself to just breathe. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned that you're conceptual. Does that come from your training or have you just something that you fell into or? I think it's always been there. In university, I read a book called The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard, which got me thinking about spaces and I was at the time using floor plans and then I was looking at the floor plan and then the actual object that the plan might have been dealing with. So in one particular image from those days was 1984, I guess I did. There was an electrical drawing of a phone 
um, like how a phone jacks into the wall and stuff. And I put that on top of the actual phone. And that got me thinking about the idea of what we see on the surface and what is actually the diagram what's below the surface. And so that whole notion of the concept of above and below has always played a part in all the work I've done. So conceptually, I've always been there. That's a nice tie-in to your pieces with the boxes, because when you were saying that, I imagine you could almost imagine the box, the shape of a box as a floor plan. Yeah, Yeah. I like that. There's something there. I don't know what it is, but that's what I started thinking. I'm like, wow, there's definitely a correlation here. And that makes more sense as to where your work's No, no. Yeah, Gaston Bachelard. And then I started thinking about spaces, the, the drawers, the corners, and especially the basement. He had a wonderful chapter on the basement mm-hmm. and the whole notion of how psychologically spaces are formed in a home. And they actually they create something that you, you take with you throughout your life. Well, I might have to read this book. This sounds interesting. <laughs> it's, I'm probably simplifying a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, but no, but it sounds fascinating to think about. Where do you get your inspiration from when you're starting to create in your studio? Do you have projects laid out or do you just go in and see what grabs your attention? You mentioned having different types of... Um, I well, yeah, I have so many things on the go because I work in so many different ways. Usually I come into the studio and I have something started. There's always something there and then it moves into something else. And often it's an image or something I've started. Like I said, for instance, I was working in wet cyanotypes for the last two years Mm -hmm. and I've been making a lot of books with them. So I have a lot of books on the go at the moment, but I also have my shooting studio at the back. And so while I was making a book, I was doing time-lapse photography in the back studio because there's nothing more boring than to watch a camera take a shot every three minutes <laughs> for 24 hours. So I just sort of let that run off in the background. And then I'll sit at the computer for the next two days with the 350 images that have to be correlated. <laughs> and then I'll do that for three or four days. And then I'll say, okay, now I just got to go. I just want to play with my images and I want to float through space and I want to layer. And then I'll go back to the figure work and I'll just play with the layers back and forth and paint with my little images. Cause I always saw that side of my practice as being more painterly as I can push and pull the images in and out of one another. And so. I have those all going at the same time. That sounds wonderful and fun and creative. You must spend a lot of time working digitally then, like on the computer. Is that a big part of your practice since you are huge? That's a huge part of my practice. I would say probably about 75 to 80% of my practice is at the computer. And that must be such a contrast from traditional photography where you're in a dark room. And I think it's very similar. I mean, when I was in the darkroom at the beginning of my practice, I was in there for hours and hours on end in the dark. It would be a beautiful day outside and I would be in the dark because <laughs> that was just where you created things. So, yeah, there was just there was a lot of chemicals, a lot of smells. I was quite happy to translate it to digital and I did it very early on. So it was long before there really were the tools that there are today. So when I was working digitally back in the 80s, late 80s, we had very primitive 
printers and things that like we just take advantage, not advantage was the word I'm looking for. We just take for granted. Yeah, take for granted is that things like digital negatives. Well, back in 1986 and 87, digital negatives didn't exist. All we had were acetates that we would put through dot matrix printers. At least that's what I would do. I'm sure there were others that would make actual lift film. I mean, that's what the, you know, <laughs> but I was like the photographer that was a printmaker that was a, a sculptor that sort of just used whatever she could find. And so I would create it with the dot matrix just because I didn't want to buy lift film and I didn't want to make the negative with the lift. I mean, it was very expensive and you had to have different developer for the lift. And so I just used the dot matrix and then I would tape them all together if I wanted to make a large negative or a large image that I would use as my negative. And I would put that down on the paper and then I would expose it to sunlight. In those days I was doing non-silver work. So I wasn't even working with a larger anymore because I couldn't afford to go that big. I mean, I wanted to go eight feet tall by four foot wide images. And so I would just drag them out the front door (laughs) back into the... (laughs) Those were early days and there was very physical for me in in that way. And it was exciting, but yeah, and it's just, and it went so fast from 1986 to even to the nineties. I mean, I was on the internet in 1986 and we had such limited and HTML was all you had for the internet. Like you didn't have a a user face or anything like that, that you could. This would not be possible. (laughs) No, no, it was not, you know, just things that you could think of. I mean, people were connecting via the internet and that was just amazing. I mean, there were little groups that you could speak with and do things, but you could see how it could blossom at that time. And of course it did. And it went so fast and then it was just ridiculous because then you couldn't keep up with the equipment because the equipment would change within minutes. You'd buy something and then three minutes later it would be obsolete and it, and then the next generation, it wouldn't work with it. So there were a few years where it was a little bit ridiculous actually in the speed that it went. And then it seems to have settled down. I think now it's settled down quite a bit. You can sort of buy a piece of equipment and it can last for five or six years. In my case, I had one printer for 10 years, but I had to buy a very large printer. In fact, I was teaching at the time and I bought it for this classroom and it was such a good printer. I thought, well, I'll get one for myself. Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned your equipment. I wasn't even thinking about that initially, but what are your tools of the trade as a photographer, like the things that you can't be without that? are important for your practice? My camera. I can't be without my camera. You carry it everywhere? I carry it everywhere. And because it's my phone now, it's amazing. Before it used to be quite cumbersome because it was larger. And then I kept trying to find little pocket cameras or I would use plastic cameras or anything that was portable that could stay with me. But I can't be without a camera. I'm always taking photos. And the other thing that I've now become very comfortable with and I won't be without is I have a large format printer. I'm very proud of being able to print my own work. It's something that I've always done from early days of being in the darkroom. Printing to me was the most important part of photography because the end result is the actual piece of paper. It's the print. You know, it's an object. Photography is an object. And it's now gone to the point where it's it's on the screen and, you know, we look at so many images a day and, but they're not photographs. 
I used to they, like they, photograph. Photograph is an object that has to be printed. So I take a lot of pride in being able to print well, mm-hmm. digitally print well, and I've honed my skills. So I would not want to be without my printer and a decent screen. I was going to say that must have taken some learning too, because to go from a dark room to a printer, you'd have to learn all the qualities of that printer and what to look for to ensure your prints are the quality you want. Well, it took years before the prints were stable. Even the G-clay prints from the 80s are not stable prints. Mm-hmm. And I printed a fair bit of work as G-clays. They're not stable. I mean, you can't put them out. You know, you'd have to put them behind museum glass with UV protection. But yeah, the archival quality of the prints now, I mean, they're not as archival as, say, a gum bichromate or a palladium print or something that's done in old 19th century processes, but they still do have have about 100 to 150 years. They'll outlive me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'll outlive me too. So there you go. But that's exciting, though, to think about that you were so willing to adapt to the technology and watch that evolve and play with it and see where it would go. I love when I hear artists are like, I just grabbed onto this process and I ran with it. So I did. I did. I had a lot of flack at the beginning. People thought it was a fad, that it would pass, it wouldn't stay. And I think the most difficult thing was I wanted to show the work I was doing because I was very excited about it, but really wasn't any way to print it, to get it out. I remember printing it on the most weirdest black and white printers (laughs) so that they would print large format and they were probably used for, I think, architectural firms, you know, so, (laughs) but there just wasn't the quality. And of course, the photographers that I spoke with, you know, the quality was so important and we were getting the, you know, you just couldn't get it to do it. So that's, I guess, why I kept using that process with the non-silver. So a lot of my gum bichromates from that time period, all of the negatives were digitally produced, and they're, of course, they're layered, so they, you can't tell it's a negative at all because they were layered within other images. And uh, Is there anything that you're thinking now that you know that's out there that you want to try or you're excited to hear about or see somebody else working with? Oh, it's a tough question. Um, I know. It's like, oh, there's something. It's a tough question now because I'm kind of tired. I'm tired and I want to stay with what I do and I want to just keep doing it well. I guess the one thing that I'm fascinated with that I keep going back to is the moving image. So playing with the time lapse right now is really spurring me on to do a little bit more with the moving image. I also did a collaborative work with Margie Kelk. We did a creative series and uh, she was working with some animations of her ink drawings and I was I'd found this really neat little cardboard I guess telescope or not a microscope it was a cardboard microscope it was called fold scope and it would allow you to put this on your phone so that you could photograph what you could see through the microscope but it also allowed you to take video so I was able to scoop up stuff from the swamp And of course, there were all these moving little creatures, microbes and everything you can imagine. And I was able to get these really great little videos from this cardboard microscope. So we meshed or I decided, well, let's do this, Margie. So I took her drawings that she'd animated and put them in with my video and started to play with moving image again with her. And that sort of got me thinking. And then this opportunity to do the time lapse came up. 
and it was a perfect fit. So yeah, I think I would, if I was going to stretch a little bit further, it would be into the moving image. That sounds fascinating. And the cardboard, I didn't even know you could get a microscope in cardboard. So that's fascinating too. It's an interesting full scope. If anyone's interested in that sort of thing, should look it up. They actually developed it for the third world countries for kids that didn't have access to technology so that they could learn about the micro world. And so they send it all over the world for education, the teacher and me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, I guess we should mention at one point you did teach. So did that influence you in any way when your practice as an artist or was it the other way around? I think it goes both ways. There's no way it can't because you're constantly learning. As a teacher, you're constantly learning. You have to keep refreshing yourself too with things. And yeah, I think it taught me a lot and it gave me a lot of growth in my studio. And at the same time, you're so tired. You don't have the time that you wish you could have with the ideas that come. So I would Yeah, there would be starts and stops Mm -hmm. and those long spaces and pauses between your studio time and your teaching time. So it would be like, yeah, you'd get a thought process going in the studio and then it would have to stop. (laughs) And then you'd have to pick it up again, that thread three, four, five months later and see if you could still string it along. Those were the challenges for me. I can relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, especially I have to say now that I'm retired, it's been amazing. I can just work nonstop and everything just is flowing. It's flowing again. It's great. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> just to play every day in the studio sounds wonderful. But so at I- the same time too, though, I have to say there were things I learned as a teacher having to teach students about medieval art that I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. that have given me life loves you know, like lifetime appreciation. And yeah, I would never have had that. So I think it goes both ways for sure. Yeah, it's true. You do get a lot from suddenly a student asks you a question and you go down the rabbit hole and you're like, oh, I'm learning about something I didn't know I needed, but hey, it's great. (laughs) And that's the great part about it. I thought as we wrap up the podcast, I would ask you five quick questions. We talked about this. This is my final five. So to start off, what's the best advice you've ever been given as an artist? Listen to your heart. That's a good one. (laughs) If you were invited to a dinner party, who is one artist, past or present, that you would love to be seated next to and why? There's so many. (laughs) Rita Kahlo. I would love to sit by her at dinner. Why would she be your dinner companion? (laughs) I just love her use of symbolism and I would love to just chat about symbolism that sounds great if you were to leave one legacy piece behind of your artwork for the world to see a hundred years from now which one would you choose and why and maybe describe it a little bit so people know which what it looks like Mm. it's hard (laughs) that's a really tough one It's always the most recent one I'm working on that has me most captivated, but I don't know. I guess there's one that we have up in the living room, and it's from a series I did called Heaven and Earth, which was, they were non-silver pieces. Mm -hmm. And um, it's actually a Van Dyke print, a cyanotype 
with a Van Dyke over top. So a blue and white print with a silver, which comes out brown, like a very beautiful sepia. No, it's actually a dark brown. It's not sepia brown. And when the two go together, they sort of create different colors when they, they're on top of one another. And um, I don't know, I guess that would be the piece I chose. And I chose it because when you look at it in different light, different things appear. And that's where I built the whole notion of layering and my love for layering. So it's like it's little secrets that appear in different light. So that I guess the legacy would be that, and again, this was one where I used a lot of digital. So the legacy of a digital, early digital pioneer. I like that. Is there a book that inspires you as an artist? I know when I ask artists this, sometimes they say there's more than one. There is more than one book for sure. The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard, for sure, early on in the 80s, that would have been one that has really affected me in the last five years was Braiding Sweetgrass. And also in the last 10 years, The Politics of the Pantry, those three books. And then Robert McFarland, who I've been reading lately, I can't get enough of him. (laughs) His prose, his writing is just spectacular. That sounds wonderful. And then the final one is, what's one piece of advice, wisdom, or a thought that you would share with any emerging artist who's beginning their photographic or digital journey? Enjoy your journey and make sure that you're doing it from your heart. Well, thank you so much, Peggy. I've really enjoyed hearing about your work and I can't wait to see your more recent show that's coming up. I'm definitely going to see Viewfinder. So if anybody's around, I encourage them to head out to the reception. Thank you very much, Lisa Jane. It's been an honor. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.